Well, I sure appreciate our missions moments. And it's so nice now that we pray for countries we've been to. And the pictures up there are our students oftentimes involved in ministry that they've had in those countries. And I think it's also wonderful that we can have specific names to pray for. I was thinking of that Susanna Chen at Kansas. Here she just comes to Christ and then has to come to one of our secular universities. I imagine all that they're teaching her that isn't right and all the people in the dorms that would want to lead her into sin. And I don't often, I'll confess, I don't think I really understand prayer. I don't know how it works. I don't know how God is sovereign and how our prayers make a difference. I don't know how that adds up. But I do know that there have been times in my life where people have prayed for me and I've sensed a difference. I can think of um, several years ago when Dr. Provost and I went to Asia and the student body was praying for us. And there were times on that trip where I could definitely sense that the Spirit of God was involved in my life, sustaining me in a way that was unusual. And I have to believe that was because there was four, five, six hundred people praying for us on a regular basis. And so I think it is, I think it does make a difference. You know, when we pray for these names, you've never met them, I've never met them, but God knows all about that. And I, I believe that as we really pray for those people, it, it does make a difference. It's exciting, isn't it, to know that we're all around the world like that. I think in our earlier announcement about the missions class, I wanted to clarify that. The important thing about that announcement is that if you've already taken that class for credit, when you take it again, you, you don't get credit again. You still need to take it because it's preparation for your next trip, but you only get credit once for that. And I hope that won't deter you in any way from, take, I mean, from going on another trip. Have you noticed that we live in a culture which is working very hard to deny or at least minimize the reality that there are consequences to our behavior, that there are consequences to sin? First of all, I think our culture does that by denying that there is anything called sin. You know, relativism is the mark of our day and everybody does their own thing and nothing is really right or wrong. Morality is a matter of personal choice and if it's good for you, that's fine, do it. If it's not good for you, don't do it. You know, God is dead and evolution is alive and with the death of God went the death of any moral absolute. And so first and foremost in our culture is the death of any absolutes, but when they do in any way depict an episode of sin to one degree or another. They rarely, if ever, depict the consequences of those choices and of those behaviors. I can remember as a young boy, um, maybe eight, nine, ten, I don't know the exact age, but I know I was very impressionable and I was probably maybe in my early teens where everything was exaggerated and so either wonderfully great or wonderfully horrible. You know, everything's kind of at the extremities in your early teens, and we went to see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. How many of you have ever seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? I loved it. I mean, it just lit me up. I mean, here were two, you know, here were two bank robbers that were handsome and debonair and suave and intelligent, and they were blowing up trains, and they were, you know, shooting people, and they never got caught until the very end, and they had, seemed to have lots of money, and a beautiful girl, and other girls on the side, and I was thinking, this is exciting. I, I remember going home. Just really being thrilled, you know, about these two guys, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. Remember my dad making a comment in the car on the way home how they had glamorized them. How Hollywood had glamorized Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I didn't understand that at the time. What does that mean, to glamorize something? And now, now that I think back on it, I appreciate the wisdom of my father. I mean, picture it for just a minute. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as Hollywood depicted them, were two of the best-looking men in the world. Right? Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And they had an absolutely gorgeous 
gal between the two of them. And their experience was always the best. Butch Cassidy was known for his smarts, at least in the movie. He always outwitted everybody, whether they were bigger and stronger or whether there was a new safe that had to be cracked or a new plan. He was the man with the answers. Sundance had the fastest gun in the West. Nobody could ever top him. Everybody who found out who he was trembled in their boots because they'd known and heard his reputation far and wide. The relationship between the two of them was one of genuine camaraderie. There seemed to be mutual respect. They loved each other. They had fun together wherever they went. If they were together, they were fine. And you put all of that on a huge screen that's bigger than life itself. Instead of being Paul Newman, who probably isn't even six feet tall, in this movie house, he's, who knows, eight feet tall. And then there's Robert Redford, and it's a beautiful thing. The lighting in every scene is perfect. All the angles shot are at their best angles. All their lines are hilarious or profound or significant. The timing is perfect. You put it all to music and you just go away saying, oh man, that was a great movie. And that means that the producer and the director and the thousands of people and the millions of dollars that were spent to make something bigger than life did its job. It's called glamorizing. In reality, they were thieves. They were taking hard-earned money from good, honest people. And by the way, they really did live in the West. And when they stole that money, and when they blew up those banks, and when they shot those people, and when they robbed those trains, they were killing real people, and they were blowing up real people's property, and they were taking farmers' money. Oftentimes, people, that was all they had. And they'd worked years and years and years to get what they had. It was all they could hope to keep. And these two wimps, these two thieves who didn't have any character or any self-discipline made their entire existence off of stealing other people's money. That's who they really were. And they were adulterers. They slept with the same woman. And they frequented brothels. And they both probably had some form of communicable disease. Of course, that was never shared on the movie. They were liars. They had no character. They had no self-discipline. They were scared, frightened men. They were hunted men. They had no place of rest. At every turn, they were afraid somebody was going to shoot them either for the reward or just for the sheer notoriety of saying, I shot Sunday. Most of the time, they were broke. They had no home. They had no family. They had no wives. They had no children. They had really no friends. And I questioned the friendship that was portrayed. It's hard for me to believe that two men having sex with the same woman, living on the road, being hunted, really cared for each other as much as they said they did. And I believe on the days when it was hot, they sweat. And I believe on the days when it was cold, they shivered. They were real people with real problems and they were nowhere near what Hollywood presented. But you see, if Hollywood presents Come See Butch Cassidy and the Suntance Kid, parenthetically, two losers in life, nobody wants to come. Everybody goes home depressed. Well, I'm not going to go see that movie. And then they don't make the money they want to make. Rather, they present Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, eat, drink, and be merry today because tomorrow doesn't matter. That's the whole idea. When they finally did die... With all those, I guess it was Spanish soldiers, and it took even to grandiose their death, it took thousands of them to surround them from every direction, and still with great bravery, they ran out of the middle and, you know, shot their way, and then finally were dead. 
And that's when their real trouble started. Right? They don't show that either. Wouldn't that be great? The sequel. And there's Butch and Sundance dying for a cold cup of water. Give me anything. Get me out of hell. You know, where the, where the fire never is quenched. The thirst is never quenched. The worm never dies. It's always constant, uninterrupted torment. And they'd give anything they could to live their life differently and at some point accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Well, the Bible presents life a little more differently than that. It doesn't make life glamorous. It shows life for what it is. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And I've just picked a few people to look at this morning. And I don't know if we'll get all the way through them and maybe I'll catch up on a Wednesday. But my mind this morning went to Saul. He was handsome. He was tall. He was chosen by God to be the king of Israel, the first king of Israel. He was very privileged, very gifted. And you remember there in 1 Samuel 13, they'd come up against the Philistines and they were outnumbered by the Philistines. And the men of Israel saw that they were, the Bible says, in a strait. And so they began to hide in the caves and the thickets and the cliffs and the cellars and the pits. They were running scared. And Saul had been instructed to wait seven days for the man of God to come and give his blessing. To give the divine revelation as to what they should do, how they should fight, if they should fight. That was Samuel's job. And Samuel had told Saul in no uncertain terms, you wait for me. You wait seven days for me. And after he had waited seven days and Samuel didn't show up, you can imagine how Saul began to feel. He was in the throes of serious temptation. He was the king. He was the leader. And now he was wondering if his leadership had enough to get him through this. And the Philistines were there in great number and his men were beginning to scatter, which meant they were losing confidence in his leadership. And this man Samuel wasn't coming and so he asked and called for the burnt offering and he offered it, which was not his place as king. He was completely out of line. And just at about the time he finishes that, Samuel comes up. Look at verse 13. Chapter 13, 1 Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord, will, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, the Bible depicts that there are consequences to your choices. I can't think of anything more terrifying, anything more discouraging, anything more penetrating than to have first been chosen by God to be the leader of Israel and then to hear somebody say to me, the spokesman of God, that God has found himself another man, Russell. God, God found another man. And this guy has a heart for God. This guy keeps God's commandments. You, we're putting you on a shelf. Then you know, because you've studied this in your Bible classes here, the horrible life that he lived after that. Insanity and trying to murder David. Just a horribly degrading life. Consequences. There really are consequences to our choices. Even more famous than Saul would be David. 
Turn over to 2 Samuel for a minute, chapter 12. You remember, it was springtime. The kings were going out to battle. But David stayed in Jerusalem. And it was evening, and he arose from his bed, took a walk on his roof. And he saw a woman bathing. The Bible says that she was very beautiful. And he sent a servant and inquired about the woman, found out that he was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But that didn't bother him too much, so he sent some more messengers and took her, and then it says that when she came to him, he lay with her. What a horrible thing. What a horrible choice. Here, yet another man, remarkably gifted by God, given tremendous privilege. He's out there in the cool of the evening. I guess he didn't confess that sin for a long, long time. Some of the consequences that he felt were over there, I guess, in wasn't it Psalm 31, where he talks about the convicting hand of the Lord Jesus, of God, trying to bring him to Psalm 32, trying to bring him to conviction. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away as with the fervor heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. Finally, he said, I'll confess my transgression. That sense of drying up because you don't confess your sin was part of his consequence. Finally, God sent Nathan to bring that to pass. 2 Samuel 12, 7. Nathan then said to David, you are that man. He means you're the man who took the one little ewe lamb. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. Now listen to this. Put your name in there. You know, David, wait a minute. Remember, I anointed you as king over Israel. It's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I'd have added to you many more things just like that. Did you, did you need more? I have much more. I'm happy to give you. Is there some problem here? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Anna. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companions, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also, also has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And that little child did. You know that Bathsheba conceived, and when that little baby was born, it died. But that wasn't the end of his problems. You remember he had a son named Ammon, and he was insane with lust for his sister Tamar, who was also very beautiful. So sick was he that he 
had to go to bed. It overwhelmed him so much that he lay there in his bed with his lust unfulfilled. He devised a plan and got David to send her to feed him some cakes that she'd made with her own hand. And she was such a righteous woman, such a lovely girl. As you read the text, you know, she was just a wonderful person. And she did what was asked of her and she provided that stuff. But she wanted to have it sent into his inner chamber with a servant. And he said, no, send everybody away. And then he said, you come in and give it to me by your hand. And so she did. And then he grabbed her and he raped her. I mean, how'd you like to be the dad of that situation? The son is now raping my daughter. And then he threw her out of the house, you know. Don't ever want to see her again. And Absalom, the other son, the strong son, the leader son, the wise son, the powerful son of David, he didn't even talk to him about it, neither good nor bad. Didn't give it much thought, apparently. But then Absalom strategized a situation where he had Ammon in his hands, and he killed him. He killed his brother in revenge for the raping of Tamar. Now you're the father of a son who rapes his daughter, and another son who murders the raper. Consequences. And then Absalom, he sat by the gate and had conversation with all the people of Israel and won their hearts. Finally, he revolted and overthrew David, and David was out in the wilderness, and he was reigning. And then David kind of got his strength back and rallied some troops and took the city back, and he had Absalom on the run. He gave strict instructions, when you guys find Absalom, don't kill him. Bring him back to me, because you see, David somehow still loved the boy. You remember the story, Absalom was running, I guess, on his donkey or his horse or something, and his head got caught in the oak tree. And so now the Bible says he's suspended with nothing to know. You know, the horse kept going, and there he is hanging in the oak tree. And Joab found him, one of David's generals, and took three spears and thrust them into Absalom's body. And apparently didn't kill him, so the ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom until he died. And then we hear that great lament from King David. Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We could talk about so many other people in the Bible that show that there are consequences to our behavior. Most notably might be Eve. And the temptation to which she, she succumbed has left us all in the misery we find ourselves today. And as I think back on my years here at the Master's College in the last five years, I have seen a great number of students, some, thankfully, who have chosen to follow God and others with great remorse have not. Some have chosen to blow off the experience here at the Master's College. Some have said, oh, this is bogus. What is this love Jesus stuff? What is this wow staff trash? What do you mean, missions conference? What are we talking about, chapel? Three times a week? Discipleship? Bible classes? They blow off their studies, whether they be Bible studies or whether they be their actual pursuit in their academics. They blow off chapel, they blow off discipleship, they blow off ministry, what they're really doing. And don't confuse what I'm saying here, but really they're blowing God off. 
They're saying, ah, this isn't for me. I don't want to follow God. I don't want to get into this stuff. And I could give you names, but I won't. But I've seen students in that attitude find their way into heavy use of drugs, cocaine, harder than that even at times. I've seen students at the Master's College give themselves to immorality, become pregnant, and have abortions, murdering their children. I've seen other students get involved in homosexuality, unbridled lust for people of the same sex, casual acquaintances in hotel rooms, never having met the person before, but sleeping with them that night. I've seen students who I believe, and time will tell, have contracted AIDS. Other students, maybe not in any of these big high-profile problems, but just beginning to lead a general lifestyle which is apathetic to the Word of God. And I fear for them. I fear for them. I oftentimes can see it in their eyes and in their faces, and I fear for them. I fear for their future, because there are consequences for them. I fear for the relationship they'll have with their wives or their husbands. I see what that looks like in people who don't honor the Word of God, and it's not a good thing. And I fear how they'll raise their children, and how their children will turn out. But see, everything's so new. We're in college now. We're only 18, 19, 20, 21. I'm not convinced there are consequences to sin. And if they are, the ones I've seen have been so short-term. How could choices I make now in college impact all the rest of my life? Well, they really do. But by the same token, I've seen other students at the Master's College choose to really try to walk with God. Not perfect students. Not goody-two-shoe students. Just students who really have an earnest commitment to walk with God. To make choices right here and right now that evidence, I love God. I want to try to learn to walk with God. I think of Paul and Sue Martin. It used to be Sue Heaney. My wife and I had the chance to go back there to uh, an obscure little place of Bremen, Indiana, where she grew up. We, we officiated at their, uh, their wedding. And my heart was filled with so much joy because that caused me to reflect upon when I first met them, when they were freshmen, and then to watch how they conducted themselves at the Master's College and the way that they held themselves in absolute purity. And the way they were so faithful in their schoolwork. And the way they were so faithful in loving the people in the dorm. And the way they were so faithful and so teachable in all the various experiences that are provided here at this college. And there they stood, right there in front of me, in front of all their family and friends. And I could tell all their family and friends, here, see? These are two young people who have made a whole lot of right choices. And they're enjoying something today that most of the world never, ever will. Never. I think of Paul Beto, now back at St. Andrews, going for his doctorate of all things. God uniquely gifted Paul with a brain. A big brain. And Paul didn't live a perfect life. Paul still isn't living a perfect life. And Paul has a heart for God. Paul loves God. And more often than not, the choices that Paul Beto makes are for God. And now he has this tremendous future ahead of him to use this unique and marvelous brain that God has given him. Now to get his doctorate and hopefully, I'd love to see him as the head of some department at UCLA or USC or Harvard 
so he can stand as an example for Christ in the midst of the godless university. The choices he's making today provide him a great future. I think of Kelly Rosenthal and his faithful minister here through the years, always ready to serve, always ready to do what needed to be done. If anybody knows Kelly Rosenthal, they know that Kelly Rosenthal can be depended upon to do the hard job. Just tell him what you needed. A lot of times you didn't even have to tell Kelly Rosenthal. He just found it and did it. Day after day, week after week, month after month, semester after semester, Kelly Rosenthal made good choices for God. And now God is blessing him. Uh, he works for the May Company. He's, in, he's moving up this thing so fast because he does the same thing there that he did here, and people like it. They see a real man. They say, ooh, that's good. Give him a better job. Give him more responsibility. Give him more to do. And I don't want to imply that if you make all the right choices and pursue God, he's going to give you a great job. Because a lot of times you do all that stuff and he does you what he allowed to happen to Job and takes it all away. But nevertheless, these men, these people were making choices for God. I think of, I think of Harold, Harold Buzis, so faithful here through the years, so faithful to let God lead his heart in the various scenarios of his day. You know, if you don't follow God making your choice whether you'll go procrastinate or go study, Maybe you don't learn how to let him lead you to go do the right job versus the wrong job, or go to the right girl versus the wrong girl, or the right guy versus the wrong guy. It all comes down to these, you know, little decisions that add up into a lifetime. Watching Harold so faithfully pursue God and all of that with real wisdom and real maturity, now he's married and they serve God in the inner city. So what a context. Those that have chosen against God and those that have chosen for God. And it all comes down in one sense to that moment-by-moment -moment decision that we make to either acquiesce to or to stand firm against temptation. How do we resist temptation? One person said, there's not a person who has ever lived, including Jesus, who has not faced temptation. And there's never been a person on the face of the earth except Jesus who has not yielded to temptation at one time or another. That's true, isn't it? Temptation is a part of every single one of our lives. Every single one of us faces thousands of temptations to choose against God every single day. With wry cynicism, the late Irish poet Oscar Wilde wrote this, I can resist everything except temptation. And the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. That's one approach. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, great German theologian, he says this, this is good, catch it. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce, with irresistible power. Desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is inflamed. It makes no difference if it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge. Joy in God is extinguished within us, and we seek all our joy in ourselves. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. 
Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. Lust aroused envelops the mind and will in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within us rises up against the word of God.